Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tactics, and tools to become a successful property investor. Charlie, I am pumped up. I've got life inside me. I should You should be hearing this caffeinated voice. Well, that was the second take shut of that up, intro and uh, it was much better. I won't lie. I wouldn't have listened to this episode if we'd used the first one. It was like so dry and uninviting. Like people are here to like hear about this property stuff, Grant. Like you want to extend some excitement and enthusiasm for what we're about to create. Uh, one day. Maybe people don't want to listen to it. Maybe they want to join the newsletter instead. So if you want to join the newsletter and actually read the information and the summary, head over to propertyinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your details, and we'll notify you every single time we drop one of these episodes. Now, before we get started, Charlie, let's cue your disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you to seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. All right, Grant, that might be one of the best introductions we've ever done. I felt the enthusiasm Sweet. and excitement on that one there. Thanks for the um, unmute, by the way. My absolute pleasure. And I'll say on the last episode, you weren't actually here, right? And I'm not sure when they're being released, but I'll say the last episode I recorded, you are actually away and I recorded a, a one-on-one with Aaron and it just wasn't the same. same. Might have been better. Uh, might have been worse, but, uh, I mean, was it like, wasn't the same. If I get boycotted from this show from now on, <laughs> I'm like, this, this is dangerous. should never have taken a day off. Maybe, right? <laughs> Can you imagine that? This is like if you went on maternity leave and then the <laughs> company decided, well, do you know what? The girl that was here in replacement, she's actually really good. We, f- we found out we didn't actually need you. Like. <laughs> I don't know sure we should joke about that on this show. I think there's a lot of rules and fair work and stuff that goes on with maternity leave. Well, that's but um, nonetheless, the uh, what is it? Contextual understanding is is relevant here. Totally. Now today, this is a topic that does not get enough airtime. This is a topic that I see many people paying no attention to, dangerously and at their own risk. Is the different end games that come with property. The different end games, and I want to set some context here before we jump into it. If oh, that's all right with you, so what I see when it comes to property investing, and this was me as well, right? I'm not going to say it wasn't, is an obsession with the asset, right? We're all obsessed with the actual asset of the property, and there's at times a lack of awareness to how that connects with the ultimate goal, which for many of us is like financial freedom. Right, So we're obsessing over, oh, should I do this property here or that one there? Should I do negative gearing? Should I do cash flow? Should I do a development? Right, There's all these strategies and ideas and we're deep in the tactics and strategies. And then the awareness of like, okay, well, at the point I am financially free, like how does that play out? Because a developer has a very different end game than someone who is doing a buy and hold strategy, for example. Yeah. Or like in other cases, there's even the opportunity where someone who's heavy into growth, well, that's going to be very, very different than someone who wants to eventually consolidate and move into other assets. But if you have this lack of awareness, so you're not paying attention to the different end games, right? And you're just accumulating the idea of like, oh, just get another property. You can actually like make a big mess here and potentially a very, very costly one. But- uh to that point, I found it so fascinating how it's people are so loyal to their tactic camp. It's like, Charlie, the only way to, you can be successful in property investing is negatively gearing. Everything else is rubbish. <laughs> or like uh, other people on the other side, it's like, oh, if, your, if your property portfolio is not cash flow positive, you'll never be successful in property investing. Yeah, if you're not cash flow pos- positive, Grant, like you're, you're literally, you're a degenerate. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're just a piece of shit, right? Oh, if you don't. Yeah, yeah. I, you, you invest in regionals, do you? Nah, man, everyone's moving to cities now. Oh, you're investing in cities? No, nah, everyone's moving to regionals. And you're like, what? <laughs> Does it ever make you doubt what you're doing? I just, my response is typically just like, it depends where you go. Like they're all completely fine. <laughs> it's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? But I think that's the perspective now. Yeah. In the, in the beginning, I was very challenged by this. Very, very challenged by this. And I'll share my experiences. Like I'd basically uh, been very focused on business for a, a long duration of time. 
no education or awareness to property investing and the strategies that exist under it. Uh, I knew property was a good idea, hence getting into property for myself, or a good idea for me. I thought it was a good idea. I can't say it is a good idea for everyone because it might not be. Um, but when you go into it, it's like you've got literally, as you describe, it's like people are saying, well, you just do blue chip yeah, or you just do um, commercial or do you know what? You should be uh, doing developments of rooming houses. And like they just continually throw stones at each other going, well, this is better. And it's like vegans versus carnivores yeah. or religion, yep. um, you know, beliefs against each other. It's very, very camp heavy. And my experience was like I would go to someone, right, and then they would tell me their strategy and then it would be very difficult to comprehend uh, why is this one better than that one. Or, you know, like you'd look at them and this would be the interesting one. I'd go, look, they look pretty successful and they do this. And then the next person, you well, you look pretty successful and you don't do that. You said, what? <laughs> yeah, because then it really became very aware is the difference is the individual and their circumstances. So like, a, you know, a negative gearing strategy in this example might be really great if you're a doctor with a securing, uh, secure employment in government and you love it, right? You want to do it for the rest of your life. Yep. So you're actually going, well, my main strategy is negative gearing. I'm going to get my tax down because that's right for me as the individual versus if you're a business owner, which uh, is me, I'm terrified of ne negative gearing because the business world changes immensely, especially in what I do in business. And I'm like, I don't know if the internet's going to exist in the same way it does a year from now. I might have no ability to cover that negative gearing. So like that strategy doesn't fit for me. Both strategies work for certain people. And uh, I, I love, uh, there was a quote by, um, Garrett Gunderson, you, you can lay it up. You had it in an ice sheet originally. I found a way to work it in, <laughs> and then I then I removed it. What is it? It's not. Uh, it's not the investment. It's the investor. Yeah, no. the risk is not yeah. in the investment. It's in the investor. Yeah, which it, I was like, Whew. but it's totally true. And that, but the challenge is that everybody who talks about the negative gearing, positive gearing, or otherwise, they have the best intentions. And I know when I started, Charlie, you know, the first thing that I lent into was Assets. someone who represents me. <laughs> so I looked for anyone. I'm like, who's that person that reminds me of like a 30-year-old grant, maybe like a business owner, da, 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 da. And I'm like, awesome. I'm going to gravitate towards you because you get me and whatever you say is the best as opposed to trying to like have an unbiased view across everything else. I was just looking for a common foe. <laughs> I was like, you know, I just wanted to sort of hold into it and that basically was my first thesis of going, that's how I'm going to dive into property, was just because I related to the person as opposed to I understood how I was evaluating everybody's strategies. I, I could go even deeper on this one. If you, Let's say your parents were successful uh, property investors. It would be very easy to grab onto the strategy that worked for them yeah. and make that true for you. And it's like, it might be the worst strategy ever for you and your end game because times may have changed. Your situation could be very different to your parents. Maybe you're a business owner and maybe – uh, your parents had, a, a, they loved, and I only use government employee as the example because it's perceived as like one of the most stable. secure jobs and yep. it's a stable job. Could be could be anything. But the idea beneath that could be that you grab onto a belief that this works and other things don't when it's not actually true at all. And do you know what's fascinating? Across my journey, I've met someone who's crushed it in every strategy. But, but that's, that's the interesting thing because- um, the second point I was going to make before is that all everybody has data or proof that it works. And so it's not that one's wrong and one's right. It's not like in your developments example, it's not like, well, developments can go well, can't go well. Blue chip and sort of negatively gearing can go well or not go well. Finding for cash flow can go well, not go well. It's just the strategy and it just depends on your personal situation and the end game you're going for. And I won't name him here because I, I think that there's the danger for people to try and replicate. But we both know someone that's been able to consistently get 30% returns in the share market. <laughs> and to them, they're like, why would I ever look at property at all? That is like, that is ridiculous. There's no liquidity, like the return. And I'm like, yeah, look, different worlds. Like you can crush it at anything. And that's, uh, I think that is the greatest setup to this episode. It's like, but I... You need to walk into it with your eyes wide open, understanding what you're foregoing and what you're going with and why, which I think is exactly what the benefit of this episode is. All right. So uh, I'll shed some light. It's um, 
When I started to get more deeply into this, eventually I hit a point. I think it was like after I bought my third or fourth property. I'm like, right. So it's like, you know, we've got uh, income coming in. There's things going on. I'm looking at the numbers and I'm going like, how does this get from what is happening today to like my goals for the entire portfolio? Like uh, I think at the time my like goal was like I wanted $120,000 a year of positive cash flow. Like I wanted 120 grand, and I shouldn't even say positive cash flow, but to live off. Yep. Right. And then, like, my interpretation was like the rent's just going to build up to a point where I would do it. So, in my mind, I had made an assumption, never asked anyone or guessed, is like, oh, like you just keep buying properties. Over time, the rents will go up, the debt will go down, and eventually you're just going to have $120,000 that will be after tax given to you after rent. Like, makes sense. Yep. And it will continue to grow as things get more expensive with inflation, et cetera. So completely future proofed. Turns out there's all these other ones. Because I'm I'm watching um, a YouTube video of a channel we won't love and won't name. And like that's not how they do it at all. I'm like, how does this work? So this guy's buying these negatively geared properties, and then over time he's like, he's building up this portfolio and then actually selling them down. And and I was like, Wait, <laughs> I don't have any of that. <laughs> well, this is even worse. I didn't know which end game I was in. So, is this what I'm supposed to do? Like, is this actually what's going to happen with my portfolio? Like, maybe over time, like I'm assuming I'm just holding all of these forever. But actually, what I'm supposed to do at another point is sell some of them down, and like I live off those profits. So, I, I would even say this is worse for me because I didn't realize the end game I was in. Yep. And to be honest, I hated the idea of selling any properties. Like, I'm a hoarder. <laughs> I don't want to pay capital gains tax. Exactly. Want? That's the first thing that came to mind. I'm like, you're shitting me. I'm going to hold this property for 30 years. I'm going to get to this point and they're going to take 50%. It's like, out. Ah. But, yeah. <laughs> the benefit of hindsight, right? But even. No, it wasn't hindsight. I'd already bought the properties. <laughs> <laughs> the benefit of. See what you might have done wrong? I got no idea. What do you call it? The, the benefit of not digging a deeper hole, but I mean a hole. <laughs> now I go, no, I'm forced into this strategy. But to the the awareness piece, because the level of maturity that you have to go to and acquiring X amount of properties to actually go to the point of listening to other people to say, hang on, you've been successful in this strategy. How does that work at the end of it? Which is sort of the unpicker of this whole thing, which is like, oh, that's different, but you've also been successful. Where mine is different, but people have also been successful. What's the difference and where do we get to and how do we get to there? Yeah, so I'll, sh- I'll share another one here and like we'll go through them all, but it's like I really think you not only have to be comfortable in the strategy you do in property, right? So if you're not comfortable doing developments, you shouldn't do developments. Right? Or, or if you uh, don't have the time. <laughs> yeah, like there's many reasons. It's yep. like the it's if it makes you uncomfortable and the risk is going off and you much prefer to do other ones, do the other ones. Sleep like you don't you don't have to do one strategy to make money. There's plenty of good ones out there. Yep. Conversely, I think you have to decide what end game you're comfortable with because they do come differently. And I'll give you an example here is like in my example, I don't like the idea of selling down. I, and I also don't like the idea of like refinancing and living off the capital. That's right. That doesn't sit comfortably with me because I'm like, I understand, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, the tax side of things, but it's like I would, I want to essentially build my portfolio like it's a business and I want that business to spit off profits via income. Like that's the the vision I have for this. If I'm not aware in that end game, and I pick a strategy that doesn't lead to that end game, I could ultimately end up in an uncomfortable position that I don't want to deal with at a later point. Or you're seeing other people play a different strategy that is not available to you because of the assets that you have purchased. Great analogy here. Imagine not picking a career that aligns with the lifestyle you want. It's like you you want to be uh, – what's a career with like a lot of travel in it, like heaps of travel? Uh, I don't know, like um, I don't know, like a VP of – resourcing or something like that where they have to travel around to Chile and W. Sure, why not? It's like, all right, you go and do that and you actually you're a travel photographer. I can't imagine a career that has more travel in it than a travel photographer. Sure. <laughs> Let's work with it. 
Yeah, but imagine you want that as your career, but it's like, oh, actually, I, I hate the idea of traveling. I want to, it's like, it doesn't align. You yeah. actually just wrecked yourself. Yep. Or maybe you'd want to be a travel photographer, but you want to have a family. And it's like, oh, shit, doesn't align with my family values later in life. So the connection between the two, I think, becomes more important. Yeah, uh, I concur. And what, what's the quote that we were throwing around? Like, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So it's the, so all these, so there's so many people that will just like buy, I don't know, cash flow posit- positive property or like property for positively geared. And it's like, it doesn't matter. I just, I just need more of these because more is better. And it's like, well, where are you getting to? What are you trying to achieve? And they'll say something similar to what you said, which is, I want to hit $120,000 a year worth of um, positive cash flow. And that's what I'm putting, pushing towards. But they don't understand, well, that doesn't mean, that means that you don't have all of these other benefits at the end. Like there are other games that you cannot play because you've gone down that road. Yeah, but and the how, right? How many people will say, I want 10 properties in 100 grand a year? And it's like, okay, how? Like how does that play out? What does that look like in the end game for you? Yep. Because um, I just think it's so fascinating. So, so fascinating. Did you put any thought into your end game in the beginning? Or is this something where you've done what most of us do, or me in this example, where it's like, all right, I'm just going to start, going to pick a strategy. And then I'll work that out as I go. Yeah, uh, it's exactly what I did, started. And I, I would argue that it's potentially the best thing for most people is just to get started because paralysis analysis is a massive thing. Like, imagine, I could just imagine me, if you dangled like a whole heap of end games in front of me, I would like try and like create every calculation permutation to try and figure out the perfect 1% end game that's going to help me now. I'm like, oh, what's going to be the perfect end game? Yeah, do you, know the, do you want to know the factory in that though? What? Is like it's there's an emotional piece to it of how much you hate paying tax, <laughs> right? So for for myself, it's like the you see what I mean is like what what if it works out net outcome the best, yeah? But you have to pay the huge amount of tax. It's like oh, tax. I, just, I still don't like it. It's like no, and then yes, or I just go for like confirmation bias. So anyways, funnily enough, that is exactly what I did. So I bought I think it would have been two properties, um, and then I was like just looking for confirmation bias. So I was like ignoring a whole heap of other information because I'm like, you didn't, you're not confirming that my decisions were the right decisions, which means you're wrong. And then I'm like, but why do I have that belief? And I'm like, well, I have that belief because I forced myself into this corner and I painted myself into believing that cash flow positive properties is the only way or the only right way to get to the goal that I'm going for. So important a point. Isn't it interesting once you can see that, hey, all the strategies work, you can appreciate the learning within them? Yeah. Rather than let's like if you're a cash flow guy, it's like that growth stuff where you shut it down, where it's like, no, 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 you, you're missing out. Like if you were able to add that knowledge into what you could do, well, maybe you could win out of both camps or apply yeah. something they're doing to your world and, and get a win. That's the appreciation piece that I like is being able to understand and acknowledge to say, ah, oh, that's leading you towards this big end game to your point of buying blue chip and then selling some down to pay off debt to go and live off the remaining can, cash. I was can like, I share a little story here before we do it? Okay, okay. I used to have a, an opinion of rooming houses. I, I did. And where this opinion came from is I have a friend who used to work in, what would you call it? Social work. And part of his role was he would be working with a part of society that is not in a great place. We're talking drug addicts. We're talking victims of abuse. We're talking like people that have been through some very challenging stuff. And he goes, do you know where those people go? Rooming houses. And he goes, can you imagine you own a property and you put eight of these people near each other? What's going to happen? He's like, just think that through. He's like, I've spent hundreds of hours, hundreds and hundreds and potentially thousands of hours with these people. And he's like, and I've seen this and I've, I've looked at it. And he's like, it's n- not a good thing. Now, that's just his opinion. I don't know if it's true or not. They might actually all get along well. But I, I took that as right. Yep. And I'm like, this rooming house thing doesn't make any sense. And then I'm like, can you imagine the damages to property? Like, I'm making this stuff up, so I shut it down. It was only like recently, um, and when I say recently, this year, I, I meet a guy and he's like really into rooming houses. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I find it very unlikely this guy is an idiot. I find it very unlikely. He's, <laughs> he's doing quite well. He's like... And we were at a meetup event and everyone was obsessed with him. Yep. They're going up to him and like, I'm like, this guy must know something. And then uh, in conversation with him, it's like, oh, yeah, like in Victoria, like there's no land tax on rooming houses. And I'm like, say what? (laughs) (laughs) 
and then he's going through the mechanics of how the depreciation works on developing them, and I'm and I'm like, what? <laughs> but and then after that, he actually talked about like the tenants, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, completely. Like, he's like, oh yeah, we just build them in areas that, yeah. and they're actually for you know, <laughs> singles or divorced people in their doctors. And you're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, everything I know is wrong. <laughs> I've been lied to, and you were just lying to yourself. That, that is the entire summary of it. But it's, it's it's funny how we do that because we always sit in the camp. Like we, or like as investors, we're like, no, this is the right way and we'll make up excuses where everything else is wrong as opposed well, to- But generally I'm right and everyone else is wrong, Grant. I no, established that. That's baseline. exactly where I'm, I'm at. But because you were there to absorb the information and go, what am I missing? which I think is probably the best way to approach a lot of these things or a lot of ways that other people invest. What am I missing? What is the piece of the puzzle that I have no idea about? What is the thing that's going to help me understand why you think this is a better strategy? Because there's no one saying that you can't pivot. There's no one saying that I can't have this end game and go, actually, now my situation has changed because I've got children now. I chose the wrong end game. I'm now going to pivot. Maybe I sell some properties and buy some different ones. Maybe I keep them. And just acknowledge that, hey, I'm just not going to be able to utilize them in the new end game I'm running, but I'm going to go change it. And I think that's the key because, as you said, like you've just absorbed new information as well that you're going to be able to take to maybe I'll maybe I'll tweak it. Maybe I'll tweak the strategy. Maybe I won't. Maybe it's just an information piece where I'm like, oh, I appreciate you guys now. This makes sense. Should we get into some end games? Let's start going through some right, options of how you can get to these things. All right. So um, we've listed some here. There's probably more. To be honest, these aren't the only ones. Uh, And again, what I hope people take from this episode is not financial advice, of course, but um, just some awareness to the different strategies and what could be right. Uh, Not what could be right for you, but it's like giving you the ability to see the different end games so you can potentially assess what is right for you or work with experts to do so. Um, All right, so I'm going to go into number one, which is the sell-down strategy. Good old sell-down. All right, okay. So selling down is really where you go and build a property portfolio. Say, okay, I'm going to use round figures, Charlie, just because I'm a, I'm a simpleton. So imagine that you get to your end game, maybe retirement or wherever you see your end game going. No, the, have- the end game is financial independence in the scope Perfect. of this. That's what we're going to layer it as. Awesome. So imagine that you hit your financial independence and you go, great, it's now point to trigger my end game and you're executing against like a sell down. So you got 10 million bucks in property and you might have, I don't know, 5 million worth of debt. So what you will do is you'll sell down property. Uh, you could do it in one lump sum. You could do it progressively to start paying down the debt on the properties that you are going to retain. And now the reason that you will retain these properties is because no debt on property means that all of the rent that you earn is the cash flow into your personal income. And so essentially what you're doing is you're buying assets that will grow over a period of time and then you will use that growth to sell down and pay off remaining debt. And that is really sell down. I'm going to have to throw more layers into that. Let's do it. That is not only it. There's more to this the, one. Dude, there is a lot more. So first <laughs> off, out is like so the maths, pretend you've got uh, 12 properties and they're worth a million dollars each, right? It's like you would actually sell uh, seven to keep five because of the tax. Yeah. And you, in many cases, not all, depending on your tax, to your point is many people sell them down progressively so they can strategically get the tax thing right as well. So if you're in a sell-down strategy, it might actually take you five years to sell down a number of properties to execute this as part of your plan. Um, another point here is that for many people, it's not just selling them down to pay off of the debts. They'll sell them down just to live off the profits. Keep the cash. Yep. Yeah. So it's like I've very much seen the idea that someone will sell a property and just merely have it there to – that's their income. That's what they're going to live off in the next duration. So, yeah, I've – I've seen both of those where, where people have yeah sold down to pay off debt on other properties to live off the cash flow or other people just, they might have 10 properties and they'll just sell down a property every two years and live off the proceeds of the property they've, they've sold down or even uh, a couple of different ways around it. The funny thing it has been from what I've seen is how people assess the properties that they sell down versus the ones that they keep, which is one of those views that I'm like, oh, that's just a, a piece that I never thought of. It's like when you get to that layer, sometimes they sell down the highest valued properties with the, with the lower debt on it to utilize the, the equity they have to go and pay down more like more properties. So in this example, imagine you've got two houses that are worth $2 million a piece 
and the rest are worth $1 million, you might sell the $2 million properties because you've got more equity in them. So you then you've got more houses left to um, risk mitigation. So you can use that cash because there's more properties. You've got more tenants, which means that the risk is lesser versus some other ways that people approach it as well. Completely. It might even be you sell down um, lower yielding properties and keep higher yielding ones as an income strategy, right? There's many ways to play it. But the key one within this is that selling down assets is a part of the end game. Yep. For your strategy to work here, you need to sell down some things. You can't hold on to everything or you would end up in the camp of like, what do they call it? Uh, asset rich and cash poor. Cash flow poor. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Now go for it. Add something here. Yeah. I, I find this one, it, it's difficult to absorb for me personally because I always look at like the capital gains tax of like the growth that your properties have had. But when I uh, sort of apply the hat of the dentist or the government worker or something like that, where they're looking for negatively gearing whilst they've got a professional career, which is essentially how do I buy a property where that I, could, I can offset like the, the cost of the house against my income. Um, I'm like, I totally get this because they're making this win of a tax during their working career. We'll say C- completely, and you got to remember because they haven't sold anything, all that growth's been compounding in the background. They're exactly. compounding in a tax-free environment, and so then when they get to the end, because they're so accustomed to paying tax on all this, they just get to this sell-down strategy, and it makes sense. Like the, they knew what they were going into because on paper, losing money on property to offset tax doesn't always look the best unless you have a long view. Where for people who are going for like cash flow positive, they look at this going, ah, poo-poo. No, I don't, why the hell would I want to put more money in? Um, and so once you put that hat on, this becomes so much logical, so, or so much more logical and easier to absorb. Another big component of this is land tax. So oh, if you've yeah. built a very big portfolio and have a substantial amount of debt, your land tax bill can end up immense. So big, yeah. selling down some of your properties can actually be a like, it's a strategy to reduce tax in that way. So you're, you're looking at it as like paying capital gains tax as the example, but it might be that, well, I don't have to pay 20 grand of land tax per year if I sell down some. So they have like a, not, I'm not going to say a net out, but it's not like a zero thing. It's not like you're only paying capital gains in this example. Like you've not paid tax potentially on growth along the way. And then you've also got this gain of like, well, now I don't have a future land tax bill here. Yeah. Or I could sell down the properties that have the highest land tax bill to go and keep the ones that don't. C- completely. Yep. I. It's funny. You can totally appreciate the concept of the sell down <laughs> because you go, well, how does that not make sense? Whether you're selling down to keep the cash itself or selling down to pay off debt to keep properties for cash flow, it just seems logical because when you're getting into that financial independence stage, who needs all that risk sitting across the top of you? Who needs to make sure, like, to always look over your shoulder and potentially get forced back into the workforce? Like, this is just an easy, easy transition into now I'm just going to land into what is it? Uh, financial independence. A very reasonable strategy. I, I look at it and go, if you're comfortable with that, you can, al- oh, sorry, comfortable with this end game and you like this end game, you can al- align a strategy towards that. Now, if you're planning to sell down things, you would want to have to sell down things of value. Right, so like align the strategy to that. There has to be some growth to sell down for this strategy to work. Are you telling me, Charlie, that if I bought just apartments that hadn't increased in value, which historically they haven't? Well, you can't well. you can't make it about apartments because some apartments yeah, have no, that's increased a in point. value. But if you had chased mining town yields, that's a better example. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so they haven't gone up in value. This strategy wouldn't work. Yeah, or if I've just pushed hard on cash flow, where I might have not received the capital growth this is probably not going to be a strategy that I'm utilizing this. I can still execute it, totally execute it. But if you've gone and bought a property that's, I don't know, doubled or tripled over your investing sort of career, we'll call it, where mine hasn't, but I've had the cash flow from it, the sell down might not be the best strategy for me to execute against. I can execute. Technically, I can. It's just that if you did it against yours versus me doing it against mine and you went for growth and I went for cash flow, you would be in a better position at the end of a sell down end game than I would be. Yeah, so the strategy of like blue chip investing or growth investing would be the one that aligns best to this if that's what you're looking to play. Totally. Um, I want to jump into the next one because it's kind of tied in but not. This is, yeah, 
So the I, second one is refinancing. My, I'm getting uncomfortable even thinking about this. <laughs> so the concept here is essentially what you're doing is you're living off the increased equity your property is making. And the way that you live off it is every, I'm going to use pretty simple concept. At the end of every year, imagine that your property has gone up $100,000. You refinance to extract out that $100,000. Now, because it is a loan, which is refinancing, it's not income, it's debt, you're not paying tax on it. And that is actually how you can continue to live off your properties towards the end game. I'm not sure doing it every year would be the way to do it. I had to use a round figure. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get where <laughs> you're coming happened. from, but that, I don't. I, I can only imagine the amount of loans you would end up with. I was going to say, imagine, <laughs> imagine the refi. All right, mortgage broker, we're going to refi on another ten properties <laughs> every year. Keep going. I, I want to share a story on this one. So, um, Bianca used to work in a financial planning office, and a part of that is they had a mortgage broking arm. And um, what was really fascinating is we lived in an area where there was quite an expensive school. And it used to terrify me the amount of people that would come in every year to refinance. So they were doing it every year to pay school fees. No. And they were doing it on their PPR. Yeah. Because well, I know uh, they, people that did that as well. Yep. Overextended or not having the incomes to support it. Mm-hmm. I, and I, no judgment here is like if you're a parent trying to provide the best for your kids and the way to get the school fees done is to refinance and get them into that school and that's important to you, go for it. I'm not here to tell you not to invest in your children. I clearly invest in mine. Um, The thing is, though, I look at that and go, the debt they're creating on their home and potentially not paying down their house, like it's heavily affecting their ability to retire later in life. Totally. So there are things that uh, come from that as a downside. So the way I've seen this play out, and I've spoken to someone who has actually done this, is they'd accumulated uh, five essentially blue chip properties in their time. They still had debt on them, but their concern is they didn't want to sell any of them because of the tax. Yep. So if they, uh, if the, let's say they bought a property for 500 grand, it's gone up to a, a million dollars. They've held it for a long time. I realize you get a capital gains discount and all the rest, but let's say there's a 250 grand tax bill if they yep. sell it. They don't want to pay that tax bill. So instead they refinance the property up to 80%, take some equity out of that property, and now they're literally living off that money in retirement in the idea that they'll sell the asset at a future point or the asset's going to keep growing. Like why wouldn't they keep gaining from this and they'll, and they'll deal with it at another point? Yeah. I, the logic, it makes sense because in your example, you, you can refinance it. Maybe maybe you pull out 400 grand in that $500,000 to a million dollars example. And I know that's 90%, but just bear with me. And then you leave that $400,000 in the offset account to offset the interest rate. And then each year you might try and take out a hundred grand from it. Pretty much. The the concept is that in five years' time, it would have gone up again and you can go and execute it again. Can I jump in there? This is where it gets interesting in this one. What becomes the challenge in this strategy? There's two, but this becomes one of the major ones, is that let's pretend you're 65 and don't work. Who's going to refinance you? Totally. So getting access to the equity is harder than you think when someone doesn't have an income Yeah, or a lower income. Yeah, the... The other one is what we've seen recently is like bank lending. You have no control over the macro. So imagine that you've got, I don't know, like 10 places, all a million bucks, and you're trying to refinance everything back up to like 80% to try and extract out some money. And like APRA has changed like how they view completely. <laughs> and so it's gone from a 6X multiplier down to like a 5X and it's like, no, you can't get it anymore. And you're completely sort of hamstrung in it it's just a consideration to be aware of because then you can potentially move from going oh shit i got no option and just go to sell down (laughs) like just forced it to a sell down again i want to mention this i know someone doing it successfully right so it's like i can i have seen it work it does not make me personally comfortable but i've seen it work yeah here's the thing that concerns me let's pretend you uh refinanced a property in a boom so let's say you bought in perth Yep. Right. You refinance at the peak and then properties prices have gone down since. What happens in an environment where your asset is now worth less than the debt? Yep. So you've got a negative, a negative equity situation. Um, again, very challenging. But even if you were to sell the property, you potentially don't have the ability to pay the tax. Mm. Like you can end up in a very challenging financial position if market conditions changed. So if you were looking at this strategy, 
the amount of buffer you would need to bring into this to risk or have other assets or ways of doing it if it's a part of your strategy would be immense. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. just very, very dangerous. Wait, 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 oh, yeah, you just you potentially refinance back up to like 80% loan-to-value ratio. I'm like, oh, I've, <laughs> I would not be sleeping. <laughs> I'm like freaking out every day. So, oh, yeah. yeah, happy retirement, right? Oh, my gosh. Not. Like, but then, yeah, then people would just become frugal and sort of slow down. Let's jump to the next one, eh? All right. So the third one is, I don't know, what, what are you summarizing this one? It's like hold the whole strategy. So essentially- Wait, can we call it hodl? Hodl. The hodls, The diamond hands, uh, which is basically you you get to the end game of financial independence through cash flow and you just hold onto the properties that you have, which is imagine that you've got, I don't know, we use the 10 properties, 1 million a property, tell me 10 million bucks in property. It's all cash flow positive and it's making you your 120000 a year, Charlie. And you sit there and say, happy days, I'm all good. That's what I want to live off for the rest of my life. And you just basically hold what you've got. Yeah, so this is the game I think most people think they're playing without awareness to the others. I know I did. I suspect you probably do yeah, as totally. well. It's like when, when buyers are just like, what strategy are you going for? Cash flow. <laughs> cash flow. Yeah, so if you plan to live off the rent from your portfolio, the higher the rent is, the more that makes sense. Yep. So for a lot of people out there in a more cash flow strategy, their aim is to accumulate enough property where it can provide the income for you to live off that 100 grand. Done. Can I throw in a couple of caveats? Do it. So some people do this strategy where they will buy and hold and have a mortgage on, uh, what is it? P&I, yep. principal and interest. And the idea is, is the property will pay itself off over the loan term, and then after that, the rent is then your income. Yep. Others do it through spreads. So this is the idea where they're actually carrying debt, but they're trying to make a margin on the debt. So they might borrow money at 5%, but then the yield on the thing they're doing is 8%, and it's actually that 3% between the cost of debt um, and the income that they live off. I'm not going to say there's a right or wrong. Again, I've seen people succeed in both of them. But this would very much depend on the asset class or the asset you've got, right? Because, again, I, I'm not saying you can do this easily, but I know a guy with a rooming house that gets 12% yield. Yep. So for him, he can borrow money at 5% and make a phenomenal spread there and, like, he can do this with debt. If you've been accumulating blue-chip properties in Melbourne and the, you know, yield is 2 or 3%, that won't work unless you've got accessing to finance it rates substantially below that, which I don't think anyone really does. Maybe mum and dad. Maybe. Hey, mum. But to to your point, this is one of those strategies where if you've spent 10, 20, maybe 30 years accumulating properties that were blue chip properties and you're like, I'm just going to hold. Well, how do you sit at this end game compared to if you spent that 10, 20, 30 years accumulating cash flow positive assets? Like it's just a different point where you get to the end game and you go, well, I've been forced into what I can play now. Can we come back to the tax part? Because I think this is really interesting because if you go cash flow positive along the way, you're going to pay tax on that income along the way. Where if you go the sell down strategy, you might pay less tax along the way because you're negative gearing, but then you're going to pay more in capital gains tax down the road if you sell something that is. Yep. So I think what's important to um, highlight here is that um, – you get taxed differently in these strategies. So you've got to be very, very aware of that along the journey. And there's pros and cons with each of them. It's just you want to know that end game and align it to the strategy you use. Yeah. It's funny with the sell down. It's like everyone just looks at the capital gains tax. It is such a large percentage, such a hit on such a high figure. <laughs> that everyone's like, no, poo -poo. I'm, not, I'm not dealing with that. Where it's like dealing with the income tax on a cash flow positive per year just seems so much smaller, so much more manageable. When if you actually go and take the sell down strategy, like divide it by the 20, like the 20 years <laughs> that you didn't pay the tax, it's like, oh, wait, it actually could be a, could be a better, better approach. It could be a worse approach. Well, the argument, and I'll say the <laughs> argument is that it's like it's more effective to delay tax and compound in that manner than it is to pay tax along the way. Right. So the idea being is that if you're doing a growth strategy, you've got you're not because you're not selling anything down to get the taxable event, you potentially, it's not guaranteed, um, will compound at a quicker rate than someone who goes after cash flow. Again, that might be true, but I'll tell you right now, 
I've seen incredibly successful people use both strategies. I'm, to your point, all these three strategies or end games that we've talked through, people have been successful. <laughs> there is no right or wrong way. Like you can't argue with any of them. Jump to number four. Let's do it. Let's jump into the next one. All right. So number four is an interesting one, which is we've labeled it as like changing assets. So it is getting to your financial independence stage and going, great, I accumulated this wealth through, I don't know, residential property. Now I'm going to move from residential property into like a different asset class, maybe like commercial. Uh, See these commonly with shares as well, like a lot of retirees. I not know. financial advice. Yeah, I'm not allowed to talk about shares. Um, I'm just saying what I've seen, I cannot guarantee this works. Do not listen to me. Uh, But I will notice that some of the investors I've met with will sell down some of their property and then put into um, shares. Yeah. Because, and do you know what's interesting about this one? It's largely driven by the idea of not having to deal with maintenance and making things as passive as possible as they get older. Totally. Which is an interesting insight on why they do it. It may or be, may not be right for someone. You would, have, you would have seen the guys that refinanced and used the debt from their property into, into that and uh, because that's similar with the changing assets. Mm, I want to say no on that one. Oh, really? Where they go and use like a property portfolio? Yeah, so you're, um, that's not an endgame strategy in my mind. That's a, a very much a strategy of like, different growth so it's like using equity to buy another house right? it's similar it's not yeah so better. and in doing what you've suggested there is like you've actually created more debt because you've you've attempted to uh refinance to then take money out and put it into the share market in a, in a different way now as for an end game that is significantly increasing risk because now it, you have totally. share market risk as well so totally. i haven't actually seen anyone execute as that an as end a, game as an end game strategy that's fair that's fair as a strategy yes but as an end game no that's a fair observation as a growth strategy absolutely that's to the point taking equity to buy more more assets totally so this the interesting thing around the changing assets approach is also that you can go whichever way you want like to your point of whether you go from residential property to shares whether you go from commercial across to residential property, whether you go residential to commercial, the concept is more that you're essentially you're building a foundational base that will help you with your end game. So in this, maybe you believe that residential property will grow best over the next 10, 20, 30 years, but then you go commercial property has got better yield or cash flow. I'm going to use the growth over 20, 30 years, sell and migrate across into commercial because I want the cash flow for my financial independence. Completely. If you let's say you've got ten million in property of residential, and that yields three percent, four percent, which if you had Melbourne and Sydney properties, could be. Yep. Right. If you were to sell down that uh, portfolio and move that same capital, even after tax, right. So let's say you had ten million uh, resi, and you uh, sold it all down, did everything else, and you're left with seven and a half. You pay twenty five percent tax on it, which you probably wouldn't, but let's just pretend. Um, the idea behind that is that you could then put seven and a half mil into commercial that might yield nine or 10%. Yeah. And that would be the differential there. And again, it's just making sure that you're aware of it, not getting to financial independence going, oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> because you could totally see how you get pigeonholed into forced onto one of these end games or two of these end games based on what you've put. Imagine getting a whole heap of residential property uh, to a point where you're like, oh, now I can totally like pivot into commercial, but then realize that commercial is fundamentally changed and you've got no other choice. And you're like, but hang on, wait, 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 what? <laughs> that was the end, only end game I was going for. Right, this is where it gets even more interesting. So, and, and this is why I find it so fascinating is the sell down strategy could completely work, right? The buy and hold strategy can completely work, but then the uh, changing assets can completely work. But the interesting thing here is that you might look at this and go, well, instead of buying more resi, I should actually buy a commercial asset with some debt earlier in my journey. So that can be a part of a buy and hold hold. rather than having to transition and sell something at this point. Both can work, but you've got to decide how you want to play it in that way. The deliberate decisions as you're accumulating your assets or pivoting based on where you're getting to as well. Because you might not want to deal with – like you. In hindsight, in my 30s, I sit there and I go, changing assets, Charlie? Sounds great. Well, I'm happy to sell down and then get a commer- commercial. Maybe I'll do some improvements and stuff. But then by the time I hit, what, like 40, 50, 60, whatever that financial independence is, I'm like, 
I can't be bothered dealing with that. And I don't want. I don't want to deal with like selling houses and finding a commercial. property. That's what so. I find so interesting about the um, retirees I know. It's like I put it out this way: is like I feel, I feel, and this is a feel thing. They just want a five percent fully frank dividend. Yes, they don't care at all yeah. about the share performance of the company. They just want that index fund five percent on average like some protection against inflation with a little bit of growth. But at the end of the day, that's what they're there it's, for. They want no they, maintenance, no hassle, want the money in my account. I don't want to know about the tenants and what fucking door they've broken. <laughs> it may as well be a bank account with a high interest rate. Like that's what they're Exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's what bonds were like once upon a time. <laughs> the rebirth. Well, we've, we've been in a very interesting environment where you couldn't get yields uh, like that. But maybe that was, and again, if again, I'm not a financial advisor or anything, but different times, I suspect bonds would have been valued differently for retirees. Yeah. You got another ring game? Yeah, we, we actually kind of got, we got another one and then like one little special one on the end here. But the last one I know here, and I, this is a, the most dangerous of the ones I've spoken about from us speaking about because we are not qualified to give financial advice on this topic and probably shouldn't even bring it up. But I know of people where they elect to basically pump their super. So rather than paying down property and rather than electing to do some of the other strategies they've looked at here, their whole idea is I'm going to max my super fund and then utilize my super to pay down property or live off my super to give my property more time to compound. So it's an intentional strategy to invest less in property along the way and more in super so that their superannuation can do some heavy lifting towards the end. And that the interesting thing around that is that because superannuation kicks in when you're 60, 65, depending, and you are expecting that you will live to that point or financial independence will potentially trigger in at that point. And so, albeit it could be a great end game, it's just understanding what details sit underneath that. Because for me, I'm pushing financial independence well before super will kick in or even help me with my uh, property portfolio. So I can completely appreciate it, but understanding that that's what you're going up against, which is like this will only really start helping you out in the later years. You're going to make sure that you've got a lot of stuff triggering off before that end game, just as a caveat or a consideration anyway. Com- completely. And it's also the thing I find most interesting, and I'll say interesting, is that you would intentionally elect not to invest more in property. You would intentionally go, do you know what? I could buy another property, but instead I'm going to pump my super. So I'm going to end up with less property overall, but more super. Yeah, And that would be the way to do it. So it's like you would have to be very, very firm on what you're doing as a strategy yourself because otherwise it would seem counterintuitive. Totally. And I know there is a whole heap of investment vehicles and stuff, and again, not financial advice, where you can buy property and your self-managed super fund and all those kind of things, which is how people sort of offset this because they can still look at it saying, well, I've got property in super and I'm investing out of super and my contributions into super are just larger so that I can go and get it. Um, And so that's one of the ways that they look at being able to kind of double dip in that sense of, well, I'm still in the property game, I'm just in the property game out of super and I'm in the property game in super and it's just going to help me out at the end. This is even more to the point of like you – so I've mentioned the idea of like utilizing super to like pay off debt outside of super at another point. But even to there is like you could do property in super as a part of your in-game strategy because it's taxed differently. Completely. Or you could make it a diversification strategy and and do other things. I say could, I, I think super is a topic I know enough about to be dangerous, not enough to be uh, helpful. But I think it's something someone everyone should be exploring with a qualified financial planner and make sure it's in there in some way. But to the point, if you're planning on retiring at 40, you may want to consider what assets you have outside of super and can access versus inside of super yep. because that time horizon could be the make or break on this. So it's just- and there are so many other end games that people could come up to. Is this just more of an awareness piece to understand the assets that, that you're buying today or that I'm buying today or anyone's buying today to go, what am I giving up? Because if I go, if I buy, if I don't put any more money into super and I just buy and grow, I don't know, a residential portfolio, I am essentially saying, no, I cannot do that end game. 
Like, is this just an awareness piece where it's more, hey, just consider, just understand, like, what are you going into or what are you, what are you progressing towards? If we interviewed 100 property investors right now, my bet is 90 of them have put no consideration into the end None. game. More. They just, the strategy is, the end game is more, Charlie. More. Yeah. And I, the fun, exciting part of being a property investor is the accumulation. Also, very few people make it to the end game. I know this sounds ridiculous, but the stats aren't in their favor. Most people get one or two properties and then that's kind of it. Yep. Like um, for ourselves of people that have made it well past that point is like we're thinking about these topics because it's the bridges we're having to cross. So for people that aren't at there yet, they're just focused on like, oh, I know you're talking about this end game thing, but if I can't ever get to three properties, it doesn't matter what my end game is. Yeah. None of these are going to work for me. (laughs) I am. You would have seen all the all the posts on like Facebook groups and things like that around people who have like maxed out their borrowing, and it's like, well, how do I just get more borrowing? And the greatest question is like, well, what are you trying to achieve? Because it's very <laughs> different. The way you approach this is fundamentally different. So it's almost like that's like the decision point where people get to there and go, wait, what game am I playing again? What what end well, game am I going for? Well, what are you trying to achieve? And then also, what's your circumstances? Yeah, what's the time in history? Like it's, there was different times where different strategies have worked. There's different strategies right for different people depending on their circumstance. And then they have different goals as well. Yep. So you layer in that trifecta and that's what makes this uh, very, very unique. I'll throw in one final uh, thought here and then I'm, I'm sure we're going to wrap this one up. Otherwise, you'll get sick of hearing my voice. You don't have to pick one. <sighs> so there are no rules that say you can't layer these. Yeah. So you could uh, int- buy a property as a part of your strategy with the intention of selling it down. You could put a growth property in your uh, portfolio going, all right, sweet, this is the one I'm going to sell. You could buy some assets to hold. You could intentionally swap some of your properties for to shares at another point if you felt relevant or you could shift to a super focus if you felt relevant as well, right? It's like I think what has to be looked at here is the idea of it's not I'm a hardcore vegan or I'm a hardcore carnivore. Yes, that could work for you. But the idea being that um, layering these in offers even more diversification and pros or cons or abilities in there. So it's not a one size or one camp. These are the options and you get to design your own menu. Totally. And I like that. I like that concept where like you can have stages where the first stage, maybe the first stage is a buy and hold. And that would help me cash flow because that's going to help me with my sell-down strategy. Or I could go sell-down first and then I'll go superannuation leverage after I've got X amount. Like you can, to your point, you can totally layer them on as stages. You can interweave them where maybe I do a buy and hold first property, second property I'll go for like a sell-down, third one I'll do something. It doesn't matter. (laughs) It's just more of the awareness. It's like as long as you understand. No, it definitely matters. (laughs) definitely matters. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. I say it matters a lot. You wouldn't be paying attention to this. You want to be aware and informed and make a great decision for you. So to my point of like it doesn't matter in the sense that However you play it, as long as you have understood the second and third order consequences of how you play, I'm not going to sit here and say you have to do stages, you have to do weaving, you have to do one, you have to do the other. It just depends on how you want to approach it. Like There are a thousand ways to skin a cat. It just matters around your situation and the end game that you're going for. Let's do it, man. Let's wrap this one Done. up. just want to say thank you for jumping on the episode again if you want to get notified every single time that we release one of these episodes head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash a newsletter put in your details and charlie will just send you little little gifts of him celebrating every single time we celebrate one of these episodes and i just want to say thank you again for joining us and we'll look forward to catching you on the next episode of property and investing